Hello, welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for many years. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their lives. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Adam Buxton. Adam is a comedian, writer and actor. He's also a fellow podcaster, so I'm hoping he enjoys being on the other side of the questions today. Adam's best known as one half of comedy duo Adam and Joe, alongside filmmaker Joe Cornish, who he's known since their school days. Adam lives in Norfolk with his wife, three children and dog Rosie. Adam Buxton, welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch. Can you tell us about a significant death experience you've had of somebody in your life? Well, I suppose the main one would be the death of my father, Nigel Buxton, also known as Bad Dad, when he was on our TV show, the TV show I used to do with my friend Joe Cornish. And he was a a part of that. He was like our youth correspondent, even though he was in his 70s. So he was an important figure in my life for all sorts of reasons. He was my dad, but then he kind of reinvented himself as this uh, person who was helping me out professionally with the TV show. And then that kind of reinvigorated our our relationship. And then and then I didn't see him for a long time. Like his last sort of 15 years, he kind of took himself off. He and my mum had split up. He was living out in Sussex uh, in a little house near the Downs where he used to go walking. And then he was quite old when he was diagnosed. He must have been about 90, I suppose, when he was diagnosed with cancer. And it quickly became clear that it was not really treatable. And so the decision was made that he would come and live with us. When I say us, me, my wife and my children and my dog, beautiful dog, out in uh, Norfolk in the countryside where we live. We're lucky to have a house that's big enough for us to, you know, have room to put up my dad. So he lived with us uh, for what turned out to be the last nine months of his life. And um, so, yeah, he died in November 2015, the very end of November. He didn't get to see Brexit and Trump get in, which I'm happy about. Well, I don't know. He might have liked Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Could we just go back a bit, Adam, and and back to the time your dad moved out of his house and moved in with you Mm. and your family? Um, What what was that like, the the, the move and those kind of initial few weeks? Uh, It was stressful. I don't think I'd ever considered the idea that he would actually come and live with us. He'd always joked about it. When he would come and visit... He would say, oh, you've got all this space out here. You're so lucky. Maybe I'll come and live uh, out here sometime when I'm a bit older. Yeah, 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 whatever. I could, you could turn that uh, shed over there into a very nice flat. That'd be good for me. Sure, yeah. And then when he actually got ill, I thought, oh, 
actually, maybe that would be a good idea. I mean, I checked what his prognosis was, obviously. If they were giving him 10 years, there was no way I would have moved him in. I'm joking. But, I mean, <laughs> there was an element of that. Mm. It was so It was so sudden, they suddenly said... My sister called up and said, we've just been to the dock, and they're talking about between... Might be a year, might be three months. So it's like, whoa, okay. Emergency. Let's get him in. So I did have a conversation with my wife, although she will possibly dispute that. Uh, this is the thing. If anyone listening has ever been in this situation and you you have uh, looked after a, a parent or a loved one, I mean, there's all sorts of repercussions and bits of shrapnel that go off in your life and your routines and your relationships are tested in ways that you never really considered. And that was certainly the case with us. But... Um, yeah, it was massively disruptive, but I was looking forward to it. I felt sort of good to get the opportunity to be a more dutiful son, you know? Mm. I think I felt guilty for not having seen him more than I had, which wasn't really my fault because he wasn't too, you know, we'd invite him over and stuff, but he was quite happy keeping himself to himself. Mm. And so when he got ill and he moved in, I said, all right, Dad, look, let's get you over. We're going we're gonna to fix up the little guest area and... Um, you can move all your stuff in. We can store it in the sheds and this is going to be good. I imagined that it was going to be the beginning of a, a, a kind of um, very cathartic mm. bonding session. Tie up a load of a lifetime of loose ends. Ask him a load of questions that I'd never had the opportunity to ask before. Because he was quite a, I mean, he was 91 when he died. You know, he was from a very different generation. Mm very kind of formal, conservative in every sense of the word, uh, pretty uptight, not a big one for talking about his feelings at all. So I thought that the fact that we were looking after him and he was vulnerable, I thought maybe that would encourage him to be a bit more open and, and we'd uh, make a more meaningful connection than we ever had. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> Instead, it was just all the bullshit that comes with making all the arrangements that have to be made, you know, getting everything straight with the district nurses and the local GP and mm. doing all that admin, you know, and uh, going to the local dock and finding out, getting all these bits and pieces of nutritional supplements that he now needs to take and all this kind of stuff. And that suddenly becomes the routine. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, it was it was not what I expected at all, and he wasn't really up for. There was an there was an initial couple of weeks after he moved in that was that was now I can see the honeymoon period, when he was very grateful and very emotional about being with us. You know, he was scared, and he was really happy that he was with us. He'd always loved the place that we live. You know. Mm -hmm. And um, always loved my family and even Rosie the dog. He was never a dog person, but he made an exception for Rosie. So initially it looked really like it was going to be great. But then the routine sets in and real life kicks in and you've got your own responsibilities as well. You know, you have to carry on working and taking the children to school and putting out the bins and all that stuff. So uh, that's that's when it got a bit more of a pain in the neck. And 
you mentioned there the children. How did you tell them? How did you talk to them about the fact that was he? Did they call him Granddad? Yeah, Grandpa. Grandpa. He was called Little Grandpa Little because grandpa. my um, my wife's father is a giant of a man, right. like a redwood walking. He's about six foot five or something, and. Uh, I'm attracted to tall people because I myself am a diminutive person, and I've realised over the years that <laughs> I'm, I'm. Uh, most of my friends are quite tall, and my wife is much taller than I am. Uh, but um, my dad is uh, was a little guy like me, so he was known as Little Grandpa. Uh, they were fine with it. We had a straightforward conversation. I'm able to talk to my children fairly matter-of-factly. I think sometimes my wife cringes and thinks maybe I'm too matter-of-fact and too on the nose when I talk about difficult things. But I've always felt like I'm happy just to be completely on the nose about it. Mm. Grandpa's got cancer. Don't know how long he's going to live. He's going to move in with us. Nurses are going to come by every few days and drain the fluid on his chest that's building up with a Plurex drain. And uh, he's okay. He's not freaking out. He's not frightened, you know. So you don't need to be. I'm sure he'd appreciate it if you came in and said hello every now and again. So that was the conversation, really, with the and children. Did, did they ask questions? Did they talk about it? Uh, not really. I think my daughter, who's the youngest, she was about well, she about seven at the time. I think it was freakiest for her, and she was perhaps a little bit unsettled. But she was fine, and she would go in and sit with little grandpa and read to him, which was brilliant for me as well. It was like a fulfillment of a fantasy because it proved to my uh, dad that, look, my children are way better than I used to be because he used to always be depressed that I would never read books, you know. Right. God, how boring. Luckily, that's changed now. I've since discovered that books are actually good and fun and easy to read if you want to read them. But for some reason, for the first 20 years of my life at least, I just thought, ugh, boring. I'm not going to read books. Why would I do that? My daughter's the exact opposite. She's an avid reader. So I got a huge kick out of seeing her sat with little grandpa reading oh, away. Nice. Although she wouldn't read. My dad, <laughs> my dad would always, uh, when he was trying to get me enthused about reading, he would try and get me to read these naval novels, not about, like, belly buttons, but uh, boats, by Patrick O'Brien. He wrote um, Master and Commander, if you ever saw that movie with Russell Crowe. It's good, I recommend it. But that's Patrick O'Brien. So it's full of all this naval jargon, like 18th century naval, I don't know when it was written. I could never read this. It was impossible. Um, but that's the stuff my dad really wanted me to read. Anyway... My daughter didn't read that. She just read whatever stuff she was reading, Jacqueline Wilson at the time. <laughs> I think that's one. It's, it's often a question we get asked in our work about how do we tell the children, you know, how do we talk to the children? Yeah. And we say be honest and I think kind of go at their pace. So not to overload children with information, but to actually give them the detail, the basic detail, and then let them come back with the questions. Yeah, there you go. Mm. And what if they are completely freaked out? Like, what if they just don't want to go and even talk to 
grandpa because it's too weird to think that he's dying. Then I think, you know, that there'd be there'd be continued conversations about that because I think sometimes for some children they might need some additional support, you know, maybe outside of the family and that's some of the work we do, mm-hmm. something we offer as well. Right. So nine months, yeah, your dad was with you at the house and heard about the kind of beginning when he moved in and some of those initial conversations with the family and the children. And how did things progress? Um, let me think. I mean, for a few months, he was doing quite well. He started losing weight. He had cancer of the lining of the lung, mesothelioma. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he wasn't in a great deal of pain. As I say, the worst sort of aspect of the treatment, such as it was, was just having the fluid drained from his lungs every few days by a district nurse who would come round. And sometimes the district nurses hadn't really done the procedure before. Uh, this is not nothing against the NHS, who I uh, love and admire. And they were wonderful and very helpful with my pa. But now again, you get someone who'd never done the thing before and they're sort of poking around and my dad would make these incredible noises. The older he got, the more he was into just vocalizing. You know what I mean? Mm. Like sometimes at night when he was staying over, I'd hear him just... It was really freaky. Mm. He was in the war, like in the Second World War. He was an artillery officer. So sometimes I thought, Maybe he's having nightmares and stuff. Yeah. I'd go in and say, you okay? Yes, it's all fine, yes. Uh, but he would just make more and more noises. And so if he was in any discomfort whatsoever, he'd make all these noises. It was really unsettling. Mm. And it freaked out the nurses as well, I think, because they'd go, oh, my God, are you okay? Yes, yes, yes. But he'd be sounding as if he was in agonizing pain. And I, I had to say to him once, like, Dad, you know, are you really in a huge amount of pain? No. Because it sounds as if, like, when you make those noises, that's what everyone assumes. Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. But he'd carry on doing it. It's all those things you're never quite sure, like, how, how much pain are you really in? Anyway, he had lots of pills. That was another thing that became an ongoing struggle, was managing the pills. And uh, only only in the last month or two did I sort of get across the whole thing. I used to busy myself printing out elaborate pill-taking charts, you know, and I'd take a photograph of each one of the pills, I'd label up what it was and everything, laminate the chart, pin it up for him and make it absolutely clear when he had to take them, sort all the pills into little things. Finally, I got some automated pill machine where the alarm goes off every half an hour when he has to take the pill but he didn't like that he'd just sort of ignore it for ages or just bash it and throw it across the room so it was all the, all that kind of thing and the, I'll tell you one big thing that was a real problem actually was he was quite hard of hearing for the last few years of his life but he refused to wear uh, hearing aids because he just didn't like, he never got used to the harshness of the sound. I think if you wear a hearing aid, maybe they're probably a load better now. I would imagine hearing aid technology has come on a lot. Mm. 
but the ones he was given anyway, you put them in and it's it's just a wall of quite trebly noise and it's hard to um, filter out the background noise. It sort of amplifies everything, you know, rather than just the talking. So he would choose not to wear them, but that made it very hard to communicate with him and it would isolate him from any conversation, especially with family dinners or whatever. He'd just be sat there at the end of the table, kind of not really contributing because he wasn't wearing his hearing aids. I guess he probably didn't know how loud he was groaning as well because of yeah, his hearing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Mm. Um, so it was that those kinds of things were annoying, that he was, you know, reluctant to take steps to stop himself from being isolated in that way. Mm. And that was also a impediment to my plan of having this bonding session with him, these, these therapy times. And um, so it was tricky. You know, he was just a kind of grumpy guy, really. And did, did you get some of those times? Well, there was tight. There were little moments. You mean of kind of connection, meaningful connection? Yeah. I mean, very, very tiny moments. Mm. I would say the headline would be no. <laughs> mm. But certainly towards the end, there were little moments when. Um, it seemed as if there was some more meaningful connection. The weird thing for him was that he was taking uh, quite heavy medication for the first time, morphine, etc., certainly towards the end, to manage any pain that he was experiencing, and also quite heavy sleeping medication. He was never a good sleeper. But all the medication would sort of mess around with his mind a little bit, and he'd get a bit addled sometimes. He was otherwise very lucid and uh, his his mind was in a good state, although he his vocab went right down, you know. Mm. He'd said at one point, I've lost half my words. I remember feeling bad for him about that. I know that feeling now and I'm 50, you know, and I'm forgetting things and it's not a nice feeling. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but uh, one night um, he woke up and... Like I put a phone next to his bed just so he can call me because like the, the he was staying in, in this uh, little guest flat which is sort of uh, across the way from our main house. And um, he phoned up and said, Adam? Yeah? Something extraordinary has happened. I said, what? I don't know who I am. So I was like, oh man, here we go. So I go over and he's all wigged out and he's woken up and I suppose, what do you call it, dissociation? <laughs> and he doesn't know who he is. He can remember his name. Like he can, if you asked, like, who are you? What are the name of your children? He could tell you. But he just felt separated from himself, disconnected from his sense of self. And I think that was the morphine had uh, knocked it out of him in that way. And I, But I, I, I realized... Ah, he's never had that feeling because he's never taken drugs. Like if you've taken drugs recreationally, especially psychedelics, mushrooms, that kind of thing, then you might have had an experience of dissociation, of looking at yourself in the mirror and not being able to connect that person that you see reflected to you inside. And it's a really horrible, freaky feeling. It's what made me decide that I was never going to take those kinds of drugs on a regular basis. I had one experience at university, which was like, whoa, 
I don't want to feel that again. And that's what he was feeling. So in a way, it was quite a nice moment for me to be able to comfort him and to actually be in a position where I knew more than he did. You know what I mean? It's like, you're okay. This is what's happened to you. You've, you're dissociated. Sit down, we'll talk. And I showed him some pictures of like family albums and things like that and made him some tea and we dunked some biscuits. And, and gradually, you know, you come down and you, you reconnect with yourself. And it was that hour or so was freaky for me because you don't like to see that person that you've always relied on and, and felt so, um, you know, you, you just feel like they've got all the answers. I mean, even when you realize they don't, mm. you know, you still have that residual impression that your parents have all the answers. They're the ones who tell you everything's going to be fine. And, and to see them so vulnerable is very unsettling. Because mm -hmm. he's still your dad. Yeah, exactly. He's still my dad. He's, I, I still have this feeling that he's got the keys to all the, he can unlock all the secrets of why I'm the way I am, for better or worse. You know what I mean? Like, he's the one. And my mom, she screwed me up as well. Don't get me wrong. But, <laughs> you know what I mean? That You feel that about yeah. your parents. And then to see them so vulnerable, it's like, oh, this is weird. This is upside down. Mm. But then there's another aspect to it, which is that it feels good to be able to comfort them and look after them but riding out those moments where they are mentally changed and addled mm. that's very unsettling i mean i i really feel for people who have to care for loved ones with dementia and other um conditions which change them mentally mm -hmm. i think that must be very very hard and uh, frightening mm -hmm. you know what i mean because it's something that we all fear ourselves that was part of the whole thing as well with my dad was feeling as if you're getting a preview of what you might have to go through one day, you know. The deterioration, physical and mental. I remember I was walking uh, down the corridor following my dad one day when he was going back to his room and he's shuffling down there and he'd lost so much weight. And uh, just the back of his head all kind of balding just with tufts of hair he was wearing a um, wearing a dressing gown and just shuffling along. And I just thought, wow, he's like Yoda. He's turned into Yoda, except not green. And um, it was so strange mm. to see him so reduced, you know. Mm. I thought, oh, I'm, that's going to happen to me if I'm lucky, if I live that long, you know. And that's weird. None of us know what's around the corner. But we believe planning and preparing now for end of life makes life better at the end. Marie Curie is here to help. For more information on how to have an open conversation around death and dying, visit mariecurie.org.uk forward slash talkabout and help make life better at the end. I mean, that's something that people don't really talk about because I guess it feels selfish. You know what I mean? Like when people are dying, is that not? a part of the whole deal that you're thinking about your own mortality as and well? You're, you're faced with your own mortality. Yeah. Which is what you're describing. And yeah, lots of people describe that as well. Right, okay. Because as I say, I don't think I've heard people really talking to it because it feels selfish. It feels like, no, 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 you should be thinking about that person who's dying, not about yourself. I'd like to talk about that. I'd like us to talk about it. But before we do that, can you tell us about your dad's death? Sure. Um, 
the big worry that I had about my dad actually dying was that he would lose his shit, that he would start to panic and get frightened and, uh, and get overwhelmed by the fear. Mm. Um, and I worried about that, one, for him, I didn't want him to be frightened, and two, for me, I didn't want to see a preview of what would happen to me because that's the frightening thing. It's like, okay, if I know I'm going to die, I'm just going to stop going and freaking out, waving my arms around. You know, the, the, if you feel like, oh man, it might be like drowning or something. Just help, help, help. With my dad, I think the thing with cancer especially is that you are medicated a lot of the time. Mm. So the edge is taken off a lot of those uh, things that you fear, the pain and the, the suffering to some degree. It's managed, not all the time. But certainly with my dad, that was the case. So he wasn't in any great physical pain. He started deteriorating quite fast. Um, he had a fall. He fell out of bed. That was freaky. And I came in and he was sort of wedged between the bedside table and the bed. And that was awful. That was one of the most terrible moments of the whole thing is just seeing him helpless and trapped there and crying out. That was That's one of those set of about five or six memories that for about a year or two afterwards I, I couldn't really think about because it would be too freaky. I'd have to shake my head and make noises and just go, la, 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 get them out of my head because it was too unpleasant. Anyway, after that incident, he uh, sort of nosedived and then stopped eating, really. And um, as Bear Grylls says... You can go for three weeks without food, three days without water, and three minutes without air. Or I can't remember what the other one is. But anyway, once they stop eating, that's not good. You've only got a few weeks. And then once they stop drinking, you're only looking at a few days. Mm -hmm. um, so that happened, and it happened more or less the way that my GP predicted that it would. He said, I think you're looking at around 10 days. And sure enough, it was pretty much exactly that. And you were still at home. You were still. He's still at home. home. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. That finally, in fact, the day he died, they came and hooked him up to one of the um, the automatic uh, syringe driver. Syringe driver, right? And I mean, this is another aspect of the whole thing: is that I think a certain type of person gets very caught up in like, am I getting the best care that is available? Do these people really know what they're doing? Um, if I took him somewhere else, would he last longer? Would he be more comfortable? I personally think that that is counterproductive and that'll drive you mad. I'm not saying that sometimes there aren't situations where maybe your loved one might be better cared for elsewhere and maybe you are dealing with incompetent people, but I think it's very rare. And especially with someone so old, um, I felt like, I mean, I'm sounding like, oh, well, he's going to die, so he'll be fine. That's not how I felt. But I also felt like I wanted to trust the people who were looking after him, mm -hmm. and I had every reason to do so. Actually, for the last three days of his life, he sort of zoned out almost completely. So that was the other thing was that I had this idea that, oh, you know, the last moments were going to be, he's on his deathbed and he's going to be saying, you know, Adam, I, I always wanted to say I, 
I was very proud of you when you did this, and I may not have ever told you how much I enjoyed your toy-based parodies of popular films and television shows. I may have given the impression that I thought they were stupid and scatological, but they weren't. They were really very clever and very well done. And, <laughs> I don't know, things like that. No, you don't get any of that. Instead, he just sort of zoned out, didn't really talk very much, got a kind of thousand-yard stare on him a lot of the time, and would come in and out of lucidity. And sometimes sometimes he'd be back, you know, and I'd say, hey, hey, you're back, you're back. And, um, and then he would babble a lot about names and places from his life. It was weird to listen to that. Um, and then he, there, there were little moments when he would make a connection and he grabbed my hand at one stage and just sort of kissed it. And that was a nice moment and unlike him. Uh, there, were other, there were moments that weren't so good when in his sort of adult state he would say, my brother's called David, He'd say, is, is David here? Is David? David lived in London at the time and, uh, you know, would, would come and visit whenever he could. Where's David coming? So I think he's coming tomorrow. Oh, thank God. <laughs> because I was the bully by that point. You know, I was the jailer. I was Nurse Ratchet. Anyway, so he got me to read to him. I said, do you want me to read to you? He gave me the thumbs up. So I thought, right, Patrick O'Brien time. Let's get some closure. I'm going to read some naval fiction. Here we go. So I start reading like the first in the Patrick O'Brien series. And the first paragraph is full of all this naval jargon that I don't know how to pronounce. And the, the protagonist's name is Aubrey. I still don't know how to pronounce it. M-A-T-U-R-I-N. Maturin? Maturin? I don't know. So I immediately mispronounce the name. My dad starts going, no! It's like, am I mispronouncing it? Yeah. yeah. Is it ma Matterin? Mm. Okay. So I start reading it, <laughs> and I'm not doing a good job. I'm thinking, I'm going to read this so well. This is going to be like the ultimate moving audiobook moment. Me and my dad, I'm going to read this book that he always wanted me to read, and I never wanted to read it, and he's going to love it. But I got through a couple of paragraphs, and he's just like, <laughs> he's just giving me the cut gesture. Stop reading. <laughs> and, he, and, then he, and then he pushed the book out of my hand because I was murdering it. So that was kind of a sad moment. Um, but funny as well. I had to appreciate that it was funny. Anyway, finally, after the nurses go, his breathing changes and, and it became very shallow and raspy and a little bit alarming. And I thought he was going to calm down and just restabilize which is what happened in, in previous times when his breathing went a bit weird. Uh, but it didn't, and, and, and he seemed to have gone by that time. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. he wasn't really recognizing me and didn't really seem to be aware of what was going on. Uh, and then his breath was really shallow and loud, and it was freaking me out. And so I, I thought, okay, he's going to be all right. The, the drive is going to kick in and and the, the morphine is going to take effect I just he just needs a few minutes for it to take effect in the meantime I'm just going to sit in the next room so I went and sat in the next room played on my phone or something and then I thought you better not play on like 
if he dies, you'll be playing on your phone and then that's not going to be good. So I went back to check on him and his breathing was way worse. And um, so then I phoned the ambulance and said, listen, I think this, he's breathing really shallow and fast and raspy and there's a bit of a rattle on him, you know. So I'm a bit worried. Um, and I think you should send an ambulance. And so I was saying to him, I, I think the ambulance is coming, Dad. Don't worry, don't worry. You'll be, you'll be all right. And then, and then his breathing got shallower and shallower and then he just stopped. Oh yeah, and then he kind of, then he kind of was straining uh, and and grimacing, and then just stopped breathing. All the time, by the way. Not really present, and when I look back on it, I feel as if he probably, you know, the the, the kind of conscious part of him, which had been in the process of departing. Mm for the few days previous, had gone by that time. You know what I mean? It was all just sort of physical, automatic responses, I think. I don't feel like there was someone deep inside going, help, help, help. Mm. I don't think that was happening. He'd gone. I think so, yeah. Like he wasn't grabbing my hand anymore or anything like that. It was just sort of automatic physical responses. And then when he stopped breathing, um, a tear rolled down his cheek and I remember I'd read Michael Palin's book when he was talking about Graham Chapman from the Pythons dying of cancer and that the same thing had happened to him a, a single tear rolled down his cheek which I found very moving when I read that book and uh, I thought oh man that same thing's happened anyway it was strange but it's it's one of those tricks that the whole process plays on you. You don't know what's a sort of automatic physical response and what is emotional or what, you know. Mm. And then um, and then it was like, oh, he's gone, you know. And then I was talking to him, so to say. You know, it, it, and, the, and that's when that um, part of you, if you're not a religious person, that the, the remnants of any religion that you might have had kick in and, you start thinking, well, I don't know, maybe. Maybe he's floating around. I don't know. So I was like, Dad, are you, are you floating around? Are you there? Are you there? Where are you? Where have you gone? You just can't. You, there's a period of thinking, that this isn't right. You can't just go. It's not gone. So I was chatting a little bit, or not chatting, but, you know, saying, where are you? Where are you? Have you gone? Have you gone? Um, but not like grabbing onto him and going, oh, no, where there? Nothing like that. Just talking to him. Yeah, just sort of talking. And then it was quite weird because then I get a phone call and it's it's the um, hospital and they're saying, uh, we're sorry to hear that your father's passed away. Like, what is that? And I, what, I think it must have been that from my description, they knew that the, this, he's on his last legs. Mm. But um, uh, then, then it's, you know, they turn up and they... There's some grim-faced looking guys and uh, they go in and put him on a gurney and put him in the back of a van and off he goes. And I went into the house and um, said, uh, oh, you know, grandpa, uh, grandpa's gone now. And everyone gave me a hug. And But by that time, you know, that's the end of nine months of not that enjoyable 
stuff. Mm. And it is mainly a relief, you know. It's like, okay, that bit's over. And then you know that, okay, here we go for this section. Mm. The However long it's going to take to pro process all of this and deal with it. Did anyone talk to you throughout the, that nine-month period about what to expect at the end? No, not at all. The only thing I heard was on a podcast, some guy saying, oh, it takes two years. <laughs> oh, he said, no, he was talking about when his dad died. He's like, yeah, it takes two years. You get through the first year. And I'd heard people talking about grief. Like I was on the uh, Carrie Ed Lloyd's uh, Griefcast podcast where I talked about a lot of this as well. And she's a, a lovely person to talk to and has experiences of grief herself and so do her guests and um, I'd heard things like that so people talking about uh, more extreme experiences of grief because I would I would count my experiences being fairly low on the on the grief totem pole you know what I mean right. because because he was old it wasn't unexpected it wasn't like a horrible injustice that the universe was serving him you know it's not like losing someone when they're very young or losing someone unexpectedly. I think those kinds of experiences are probably harder and more shocking to deal with. Um, but, yeah, I'd heard people saying, you know, you make it through the first year and and uh, and then, then it starts to ease off a little bit. And after a couple of years, you you feel a bit more upbeat again. Certainly for the first couple of years, for me, I found everything's just got a real base note of sadness you know mm. so you can still have fun and things go back to normal in in a lot of ways but everything's just a bit like melancholy and a bit gray um and then the 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 main thing i found was that i mean i'm 50 now so this was a few years back but my midlife crisis started kicking in big style right. and just preoccupation with your own mortality you know how long you've got left and what you've done and what you haven't done and all those kinds of things, which really I'd never... I mean, I'm in a lot of ways quite a silly person. And Had you not thought about that before? Not that much. Your own death? Not really. Not seriously. And then suddenly I was thinking about it and it was not that enjoyable. Do you think about it now? <laughs> um, I do, but less... Uh, I think I've I, I think I've um, come to terms with with a certain amount. I'm not, I'm sure I don't want to speak too soon because you never know. You have good you have good months and bad months. You know, some months you think, oh look, everything's fine now. I'm fine, and then other months it just you have something bad happens and it hits you and you really feel like, oh man, I'm on the slide. It's downhill from here. You know what I mean? Hmm. Um, but, uh, no, I'm not too panicky, and I think part of it is because I did have that experience with my dad, and I did think, actually, the things that I was worried about, the fear, the panic, the pain, things like that, I think in the modern world, on the whole, if you're lucky, that's not the big problem. That can be managed. That can be managed, yeah. So, thinking about, you know, our own deaths... Have you spoke to people about your wishes? Have you wrote a will? Have you 
talked about your funeral? Have you put anything down on paper? Um, I've done the will, haven't done the rest. And yeah, good call on the funeral. Because I was talking to someone the other day, actually, about exactly this. That you, you do have to think about it all. Otherwise, if you've got siblings, there's going to be arguments, even if you get on pretty well. They're going to say, oh, no, no, he would have wanted horses and uh, everyone carrying pink umbrellas because he loved all that kind of thing. No, he didn't. He would have wanted everyone to sing Beatles songs. No, he hated the Beatles. He would have wanted uh, Loud Wagner. Anyway, so it's good to be specific with all that because that's the last thing you want to be doing is arguing with your siblings after someone dies, I think. My mum's good. She's still around. She's written it all in a letter. Right. She gave it to me a few years back. And uh, said, here you go. And she's written out where she wants to be buried, who the guy is in charge of the churchyard. It's all, she's totally across it. She wants she's a couple of hymns, a couple of prayers. It's all sorted. So that's good. I want to do that too. But and you've he, not yet had that conversation with your family, with your wife? Or? Uh, no, not yet. But I'm going, I'm going home and I'll do that today. I'll write it down. I promise. Um... And then the financial aspect of things, obviously that has to be sorted because that I've seen that completely torpedo families and relationships when mm. someone dies and there's uh, inheritance to be sorted out. That wasn't a factor with my dad. He had nothing. <laughs> so it wasn't an issue which I'm grateful for. There was a certain amount of pretty tedious admin that dragged on probate, all this stuff that I found out about. It was a pain in the neck, but it was a, it was fine in the end. You get through it, and yes, I was grateful though that there wasn't some vast estate to be carved up and mm. money to be haggled over. And my dad was pretty good actually. In the last few months, he he did tie up a lot of those loose ends and ensure that there was nothing for us to worry about and haggle about to it as much as he could. You know. What about your legacy? What what will your legacy be? Jesus, my legacy. I don't know. Like, uh, there'll just be some podcasts floating around. And um, probably someone will get hold of, um, I don't know, I'll probably get cancelled at some stage because they'll figure out that they'll find some podcast where I said something dreadful that is no longer acceptable in 2040. And uh, then I'll be cancelled and my name will be redacted from the records. Do you think it's important, the legacy thing? No. I mean, I really don't. I think that is one bit of wisdom that maybe I've, I've got to grips with is that it is not in any way important. And it is entirely antithetical to happiness while you're on the planet to think about that shit. And I know so many people who do, and I completely understand it, and I've thought about it myself, your legacy, especially for someone like me whose work is really very ephemeral in a lot of ways and silly. Just to start getting preoccupied by that is a disaster area. And even people I really love and admire, you know, I, uh, I spoke to a director who worked with David Bowie before he died, and he was saying, oh, you know, Bowie used to think about his legacy a lot. I mean, especially someone like him, you think, mate, you're sorted. Don't worry about it. 
but he was a, right up to his death concerned with and managing. I mean, that was one of the things I really admired about how he died was that was that he did seem to be tying up the whole thing. His last album was seemed to be all about facing his own mortality, and it was mm. it was a beautiful full stop to his career. But I think you can drive yourself nuts thinking about your legacy and all that and how people are going to think about you. I mean, it really, really is the definition of pointlessness. And um, it's much more fun as soon as you start. It's hard to do to stop thinking about, like, how important you are or how relevant you are. But once, as much as you can cancel it out, it's like someone is just taking a weight off you it's amazing it's mm. nice just to finish off adam can i ask you is there anything for anybody who's listening who's grieving um, and bereaved that um you know you might advise or something that might might have helped you god i hesitate with advice because i always feel as if i'm doing so many things wrong myself you know just trying to get through but i suppose don't give yourself too hard a time don't torture yourself with things that weren't said and resolutions that weren't offered and provided mm. and maybe with things that really hurt that were said, you know. I have a friend and when her sister died, um, her dad was in the hospital and uh, was very upset immediately afterwards and said, the best one's gone. <laughs> how the fuck are you supposed to deal with that your dad saying the best one died to you and your and your her sister and these things come out you know they just get said and you have the option to fixate on them and make them legendary and make them dominate your life and make them define your relationship to that person mm. or you can try and wrestle with the truth which is that people just say mad shit hmm. that's not to say that sometimes you know there isn't some truth to it but even if it is true there's more to it than that and you have to remind yourself that you are a big part of constructing the reality of your relationship with that person as well if that makes sense mm -hmm. and i found it easier recently to to remind myself of all the things i loved about my dad that were great about him um, and not just dwell on... Uh, for, for a while, I was dwelling on, like, all the things that I thought, oh, yeah, and you, and you did that other thing, and you said that other thing that hurt, and you screwed me up that other way, and, oh, yeah, I never forgot that other mean thing you said, you know. Mm. I got kind of got in a loop of doing that, just over and over, and I'm glad I've got out of that now. Not to say it's gone. Mm. It's fun to blame your parents for things. <laughs> but it's less bad. Thank you so much, Adam Buxton. Cool, Can I yeah. shake your hand? Sure. Cheers, Jason. Sorry, Cheers. I, I didn't really give you a chance to speak. <laughs> but thanks a lot for letting me talk. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which includes specially trained nurses. 
call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. Join us next time when we'll be talking to broadcaster, actress and novelist Janet Ellis. This podcast is made by Marie Curie, a national charity that supports people affected by terminal illness. For more information and support, you can visit our website, mariecurie.org.uk. The podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.